0: With someone like Joseph Pulitzer. Uh, Here is this great inspirational figure for people who are journalists or not, a real rags to riches story, a real uh, immigrant success story. It's something we can all learn from, and it's a way of better understanding American history as a whole.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told.
0: I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics.
1: And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. They were two larger-than-life publishers who transformed American newspapers. In the late 19th century, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst competed to win over readers with screaming headlines, eye-catching pictures, and escalating stunts. They embodied the new age of yellow journalism, marked by sensational reporting that played up crimes and scandals, exaggerated events, and sent circulation numbers soaring. We are releasing back-to-back episodes today and tomorrow to examine the lives of these newspaper titans. Today, we review the unlikely career of Joseph Pulitzer, a poor Hungarian immigrant who arrived in America during the Civil War and crusaded against big business and corruption in the pages of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the New York World. First, you'll hear from Chris Daly, a journalism professor at Boston University, who has written extensively about Pulitzer and helped conceive a documentary about him. Then we'll head to Pulitzer's adopted hometown of St. Louis for a conversation with historian Jody Sowell at the Missouri History Museum. Welcome, Chris, to the Journalism History podcast.
2: Well, Nick, it's a real pleasure to be here with you and your listeners.
1: We're happy to have you here as we kick off this first of our two episodes on the newspaper titans, specifically the two publishers most associated with that term in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World and William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal. And today we're going to start by looking at Pulitzer. And you, of course, are an expert on Pulitzer. You've covered his career in your 2012 book, Covering America, A Narrative History of a Nation's Journalism. And you helped conceive and edit the documentary, Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People, which aired in the spring of 2019 on the PBS television series, American Masters. So as we start off, Chris, can you just tell us what has drawn you to devote so much of your attention to Pulitzer?
2: Well, he is a fascinating figure. So there's that, you know, there's the the sort of biographical appeal. Uh, I think you also have to consider the dimensions of his career. Uh, He's someone who in the, in the landscape of that period, 1890s, first part of the 20th century, uh, looms so large, you can't miss him. uh, Mm -hmm. Battling with uh, corrupt politicians Battling with the president of the United States, uh, innovating over and over and over, uh, so there's that dimension. The impact, you know, on the field historically, and then I think Pulitzer is also a very unusual figure in the scale of his legacy. Uh, Pulitzer keeps influencing American journalism every month uh, through the existence of the journalism school at Columbia that he founded in his endowed in his will uh, and of course the pulitzer prizes which continue to inspire uh, great work by american journalists so uh, th- this this is a career really unlike any other
1: and let's then dive into it joseph pulitzer was born on april 10th 1847 in what is now hungary and young joseph actually grew up in comfortable circumstances his father was a successful grain and produce merchant but when joseph was only 11 his father died, and his mother remarried. And in covering America, your book, you describe how Pulitzer despised his stepfather. And as he approached manhood, he looked for a way out of Hungary. So, can you take us back to that time? How did Pulitzer first come to the United States?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. So Joseph Pulitzer was not a great physical specimen. As a adolescent, uh, he was very scrawny, um, didn't have great eyesight, um, and uh, He actually tried to enlist in several armies in Eastern and Middle Europe, uh, and they all rejected him. Uh, They didn't want uh, the liabilities that they saw with this kid. But late in the, uh, sometime around 1863, he did come across an advertising flyer being distributed in Europe by the Union Army of the United States, which was running out of bodies to keep fighting. The Civil War, uh, and they were not particularly fussy by this point uh, about who they brought in and so the recruiter signed him up, and he was put on a ship along with a lot of other young men to uh, to be recruited into the u uh, s army and uh, You know the story goes that as the ship approached the east coast of the u s uh, Pulitzer had caught caught wind of the fact that these recruiters would get paid money by the U.S. Army for bringing in these young men. But if the young man showed up at the recruiting office on his own, uh, he could get the bonus himself. So Pulitzer jumped ship, <laughs> swam to shore, dried himself off and went to the recruiting office and got himself issued into the U.S. Army, got the bonus uh, and you know launched himself as an American. And I think it's worth noting there that that young man who came here was alone. He was penniless. Uh, He had no advanced degrees. He did not speak English. He was, in other words, exactly the kind of person that uh, this administration currently in power in the U.S. is trying to exclude and make sure they can never come here again. Uh, And yet, you know, here's a tale... Of you know, up from the bottom, up from the very bottom, uh, and you know Pulitzer 's mark on America is all the more remarkable, I think, because of the uh you know such an inauspicious beginning
1: well, and as you write in the book, that story of his journey to America, desperate teenager landing on the shores of a country where he has no friends, you just said, no family, almost no cash it sort of exemplifies the qualities that will come to define him later in life, his daring nature, willpower, and a head for making money. Um, And then after the Civil War, a new generation that includes Pulitzer brings what you describe in your book as a dramatic and lasting change to American journalism. After he serves in the Union Army, Pulitzer ended up in St. Louis, and he studied law and passed the bar exam. He became a U.S. citizen and in 1878, he buys his first newspaper, the St. Louis Spatch. He merges it with the St. Louis Post, but we know that Pulitzer eventually goes east. So, can you tell us how he got to the paper that he is best known for today, the New York World?
2: Sure. So, uh, after you know his success in St. Louis, uh, Pulitzer had uh, capital. He had money to spend uh, in order to you know expand his business enterprises. So. He took that money uh, and went to New York, and the New York newspaper market was big enough that it had quite a few papers in it, uh, including some that were not doing very well. And the World was one of those; it was, uh, you know, a failing newspaper, and therefore it was available, dirt cheap. So he, you know, used his own money to uh, buy the newspaper outright and was on his way. So that from that point on. All the money he made was was his to do as he wanted with. Uh, he could spend it on himself. He could reinvest it in the paper, which he mainly did. Uh, but he didn't come in to the job with, um, you know, a lot of debt and creditors waiting for him.
1: And so now he's running the New York World in a very competitive market for newspapers. The World is located on Park Row, on the same street as some of those competitors: the Sun, the Herald, the Times, the Tribune, and the Journal. And the world had the lowest circulation of all of them, as you write, less than twenty-three thousand. So, how did he gain ground on these other papers? What sort of coverage was he running in the world?
2: Oh, sure. Well, I think you have to you have to begin to see um, the many dimensions of Joseph Pulitzer's success, and I think this is one thing that uh, I'd like to kind of address early on in our discussion. And that is uh, one thing I find very frustrating is in many many discussions of Joseph Pulitzer, um, there's a tendency to focus on one dimension of him, uh, whether that is the, uh, you know, political reformer crusader, whether it is the stunt journalist, whether it is the uh, innovator in graphics, uh, and, you know, the use of color inks and and cartoons and things like that. But Pulitzer was all of those things. And I think that's what's uh, most important to keep in mind, was that he was, as you mentioned, a person of tremendous energy, but also he had many um, distinct abilities. And it's it's wrong, I think, to, to um, see any one of them as representing the whole person uh, of Joseph Pulitzer. So let me start by suggesting he was a very smart uh, business manager of the newspaper. He cut the daily price down to two cents. It had Uh, Since the days of the penny press in the 1830s, uh, the prices of New York City newspapers had been creeping up, and by the time Pulitzer arrived in the 1880s, uh, it was commonplace for those newspapers to sell for three, four, five, even six cents a day. So Pulitzer did one thing right away to separate himself from the rest of the marketplace, and that was get the price down to the point where, uh, you know, the ordinary working person could afford it. Uh, Immigrants, maids, uh, working people of all kinds in the labor, laboring class, in the lower ranks of the trades. Uh, You know, there were a lot of people in New York who couldn't afford five or six cents a day for a newspaper, but could pay two cents. So that's one thing, a conscious move to go down market and sell cheaply, but to a lot of people. And of course, the other thing you know that he started to do right away was to punch up the uh, writing and the uh, energy level in the contents of the paper. You know, there's we use this term sensationalism a lot, uh, and it's often you know used as a pejorative. It's, it suggests that uh, you know the, the the publisher, the reporters, the editors are being irresponsible and uh, hyping things that maybe aren't particularly relevant or playing up the uh, the ghoulish and bloody aspects of things. And, and that's a, a useful term when we need it. But I think there's another dimension of this that I really want to bring out about Pulitzer. And that is, he thought that the writing in a newspaper should appeal to the senses of the readers. That is, you know, to their uh, the way he was always getting his reporters to try to answer the questions: How did things look? Uh, how did things feel? Even how did things smell? Uh, he wanted to touch the readers through all of their different senses, and so the writing had to become much livelier, and of course the reporting had to become better too. Uh, you know, first you have to notice these things when, when a, you as a reporter are out in the field. Then you have to get back to the office and bring them to life in words and sometimes pictures. So that, I think, too, is another part of Pulitzer's success. And I, I throw another item in to that formula as well. And that is, as an immigrant, he never forgot what it was like to be an immigrant, to be here in this country, confusing place. And New York could be overwhelming. Uh, and he established... The world as a friend of the immigrant. And by that I mean, you know, it was very visual. It was much easier to read and understand than some of the other English language New York City dailies. Uh, but also, he would, you know, run these uh, features on a regular basis explaining life in America to the newcomer, uh, doing things like in early spring, he'd have a guide to the game of baseball how do you play baseball? What do all these strange terms mean? How could a, a, you know, an immigrant who just arrived here really get in touch with the national pastime? And these kinds of things, you know, I think endeared Pulitzer to a tremendous number of the immigrants who were still flooding into New York City all during this period. So there, you know, there's a bundle of innovations right there that set him on a pathway toward uh you know the tremendous success that followed
1: well and as you talk about those innovations he's also benefiting from technological advancements in journalism that helped fuel productivity and profit by 1890 he had 1200 employees and he was on his way to producing a million copies a day eventually the world grew into the nation's largest newspaper so how about the technology changes how did those in that era help pulitzer grow the world
2: sure so one thing um you know, is the continuing fall in the price of newsprint, that kind of, you know, uh, crappy paper that we have been publishing newspapers on for uh, for a long time. Once, it, you know, once we uh, got away from uh, linen and other rag-based papers of the 18th century, which were quite expensive. That's one reason that those newspapers uh, cost a lot. Uh, but during the 19th century, the techniques for making paper out of wood pulp uh, kept improving so that the, the final product got cheaper and cheaper. So you could now contemplate uh, printing a million copies a day of a many, many uh, page newspaper uh, and not break the bank. Uh, of course, also the speed of those presses kept increasing such that uh, you know they could physically, literally roll fast enough to keep up with that uh, kind of output. And I I think another, uh, you know, sometimes underappreciated breakthrough here at the same period of time is the linotype machine. Uh, Thanks to Mergenthaler, uh, the ability to turn uh, what we would think of as copy, you know, pieces of paper, usually handwritten, that are being produced in the newsroom, those have to be converted into... (laughs) Uh, you know, beds of hard type that can be used on the printing press. The key intermediary there is the uh, linotype machine where, uh, you know, a skilled operator can sit there and look at a piece of handwriting and turn it into, uh, you know, hard uh, print in a very short time. So that's, the, that, that's that catches up the speed of the back end, the printing part of it, with the volume of stories and the pace of uh, fresh reporting that's going on in the newsroom. All of those things combined uh, make it feasible to consider that scale of mass production of newspapers. And one other thing that's coming along in the same period is the invention of the halftone process, uh, which makes it possible for the first time to present uh, an image of a photograph, along with text in the same page of a newspaper, so newspapers can now start to be to integ- really really and truly for the first time integrate photography and print
1: so as all of this is going on, Pulitzer is running the world, what is his style as a publisher? You mentioned that he had some suggestions for reporters before, but was he more of a hands on publisher appearing in the newsroom and directing coverage? Or, since you mentioned that he was sick throughout his adult life, the failing eyesight and constant headaches, did he direct the paper from afar and delegate a lot of that responsibility to editors? Uh,
2: yes. In short, yes, he did. Uh, you know, when he was younger, he, of course, you know, spent a lot of time in newsrooms. Uh, some people thought he lived there. Uh, but, you know, as his uh, eyesight got worse as his headaches got worse, his uh hypersensitivity to sound uh pulitzer was really uh racked by a lot of different uh neurological disorders and complaints, and so he spent more and more time uh on his yacht the Liberty uh he spent more and more time uh roaming around Europe in search of the perfect uh, like health spa he would go to famous hot springs at places like Baden-Baden. He would tr- try over and over again to find the perfect getaway in Switzerland. And, and so for a lot of reasons, he was not physically present in the newsroom as the years went by. But he had a series of uh, aides and secretaries, uh, and he was constantly uh, dictating orders to them to be relayed back to the newsroom. And there, you know, his managing editor, John Cockerell, or one of the many editors who worked under him, would be in charge of making sure that Mr. Pulitzer's wishes were carried out. And Pulitzer was a very close reader of his own newspaper, no surprise, but he would study it every day and, uh, uh, you know, fire off his rockets back to the newsroom about everything that he thought could have been done better.
1: And one of the things that he did pioneer that I guess he thought could be done better was the stunt that would appeal to some of the common people who are reading the paper. This is actually a great resolve to a so-called slow news day. If news did not break on a particular day, the New York world guaranteed it would provide lively reports anyway by essentially making its own news, right? So what about these stunts that appeared in the
2: world? Sure. Yeah, Pulitzer was... um you know, uh, open to all kinds of good ideas, especially ones that would increase circulation. So he took a gamble on uh, the young, daring woman reporter, uh, whose byline was Nellie Bly, Elizabeth Cochran, uh, you know, famously talked her way into uh, a dare uh, to try to get a job at the world. She had to go uh, undercover into the Women's Insane Asylum in New York City, pretend to be mentally ill uh, in order to do uh, a first person expose of the conditions inside the asylum. Uh, It's a pretty overwhelming kind of an assignment. And I have to say, just like in a personal aside, the only story in my reporting career that I can recall that I ever like flopped on. I just couldn't even deliver the copy. Was a time when I was assigned as a young reporter to go to a state mental hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts. And I was so shaken by the experience, and this I was just there for a couple of hours on a walkthrough, uh, but I could not go back to the newsroom and put it together two two sentences. <laughs> Nellie Bly, on the other hand, you know, lived for more than a week in the asylum as a patient. So she got the she got the treatment. She got the crappy food. She got the uh cold baths. Uh she heard uh other patients being beaten. Uh, it was a hor- horrifying uh, kind of experience. Um and then Pulitzer, you know, sent a lawyer around to help get her out and uh uh played the story up on the front page, milked it for all it was worth. And and there, you know, I I would give Pulitzer some extra credit here because this is a this is a great episode that not only launched Nellie Bly's career at the World, uh, and not only sold a lot of papers, but also served uh, Pulitzer's other great interest, which is reform, which is the improvement of society. Uh, He felt the newspaper should be uh, doing more than just, you know. Uh, profiting off the misfortunes of others, exploiting them, uh, you know, uh, serving as a kind of a voyeur. And instead, the newspaper should be serving as a, as a, as a protector and an advocate and an avatar of reform. So, uh, of course, he built a campaign around Nellie Bly's reporting and got the New York City government to uh, spend a tremendous amount of money on fixing up that women's insane asylum. So, uh, you know, I think we need to give a tip of the hat here to Joseph Pulitzer. Uh, He was not merely sensationalist. He was not, uh, you know, ruthlessly exploitative of subjects and circumstances. He was seeing them as a way to, um, you know, make life better.
1: And so it seems like he has, of course, this vast contribution to American journalism you mentioned at the beginning uh when he dies in 1911 he left 2 million dollars to Columbia University to endow a school of journalism and pay for the annual Pulitzer prizes which would become the highest honor in the field so what do you make of this Chris even though we've just described Pulitzer is maybe known for stunts and you said he has this stereotypical connection to sensationalism although i suppose some of that is true he's a pioneer of yellow journalism uh, it seems that he wanted to be remembered for something greater. So what do you make of this sort of uh, affinity for the tradition of journalism with Columbia University and the Pulitzer Prizes?
2: You know, this brings me to another dimension of Pulitzer's uh, role in journalism, and that is he was committed to trying to elevate the standards and practices of journalism. When he came into the business in the 1880s, it was, let's face it, uh, you know, a pretty uh, scruffy lot of men who worked in newsrooms. Uh, and uh, newspaper was uh, definitely a blue-collar kind of job. It was not a profession uh, by any means. Uh, and Pulitzer consistently advocated in, in publisher forums in uh, his own writings, um, he consistent, consistently pushed for uh, higher standards of accuracy, uh, of uh, all around professionalism, you know, independence from parties, independence from the government, independence from even from advertisers. Uh, he really contributed a lot to this ethos that the newspaper works best when it is profitable enough to be able to tell anybody to just buzz off and to go about you know following its own direction so i think you see that in his determination to use a lot of his fortune to not just like put his name on buildings which actually didn't even happen at columbia columbia did not call the program the pulitzer program in journalism uh, or the pulitzer school His name was on the building, but gee, I mean, it it was a very low profile. Um, Nevertheless, you know, he did endow one of the top schools in journalism in the country. And uh, I think the prizes have really, um, you know, crept up on all of us in terms of how with each passing decade, those prizes have become uh, more and more prestigious, more and more uh, something that... Younger journalists are aware of and think of themselves as, uh, you know, being possibly able to compete for if they are good enough. And that and that's what I think, uh, you know, Pulitzer has done for all of us uh, ever since his death uh, is to uh, raise the ceiling, if you will, on American journalism. What can we do? Uh, he's not only asking what have we done, but what could we do with new tools, with new approaches, with new scoundrels, with new (laughs) schemes and and, and new levels of rottenness, you know, to expose. Uh, The challenge, uh, you know, is is tougher than ever. Uh, The tools are better than ever. And Pulitzer is there to keep, I think, you know, trying to push us uh, further and further up that hill.
1: Well, he's certainly a fascinating and multi-layered figure. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about him because he is presented sort of stereotypically as this one-dimensional guy who was just known for bringing about yellow journalism and this downturn in American journalism and all of that. Um, or people only know him from the Pulitzer Prizes, I suppose, and think, oh, he must have been an amazing publisher who was uh, revolutionary and was only you know, good. And of course, there's, a, as you kind of pointed out, a mixture of both of those um, in the true story. So you've helped us you know, get a more accurate idea of who he was, and we thank you for that. Um, we also look forward, because we're not done with you yet, to having you back on our next episode, which will be released tomorrow on William Randolph Hearst. Uh, the obviously the rival of Joseph Pulitzer. So we're going to get into the big war between Pulitzer and Hearst and some of the similarities and differences in their personalities. But right now, we're not done with Pulitzer just yet. We're going to head to St. Louis for a special interview with a museum official in Pulitzer's adopted hometown. I'm joined now by Jody Sowell, the Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Missouri History Museum. Jody, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here.
1: And we've just heard the historian Chris Daly discuss the remarkable career of Joseph Pulitzer, and we appreciate your taking the time today to tell us about Pulitzer's roots in St. Louis. So the Missouri History Museum explores the history of St. Louis from its founding in 1764 through the present day. And that, of course, includes the period when Pulitzer arrived in St. Louis, 1865, right after the Civil War. So what can you tell us about Pulitzer's life in St. Louis?
0: Right, so Pulitzer's career is remarkable, and it, and it gets its start here in St. Louis. So you're right, he came to St. Louis in 1865. He was he was struggling to sort of find his way in New York, and and there was a real German influx into St. Louis. So this was a certainly a friendly community to immigrants, and so he comes to St. Louis, but but doesn't. Doesn't really find his footing here. It's interesting when he first came to St. Louis. He said that the the lights of St. Louis looked like a promised land to me. Um, but it but it didn't really start off as a promised land. He took took several jobs. He uh, was a waiter. He was a baggage handler. He worked with mules for a while. Um, so really really struggled to find his way, and certainly didn't jump into journalism. Um, but one thing he did, you know, he didn't really speak much English when he came to St. Louis. So he would go to the Mercantile Library to study English and to study law. And and that's where his journalism career starts in, in a bit of an unusual way. He was observing a chess game. Um, and Pulitzer always, always opinionated. Um, Pulitzer to start, started to critique the players and say the moves that they should have made. Well, those players were the editors of a German-language newspaper called the Westleisch Post. Um, and they were so impressed by maybe his bravado as w- much as his uh, chess skill, and so they hired him on as a reporter. And just a few years later, uh, he would actually be a part owner of that newspaper. Actually, a little bit later in 1878, he buys the St. Louis Dispatch and then merges that with the St. Louis Post to become the St. Louis Post Dispatch. Uh, they produced their first issue on December 12th, 1878, but really becomes one of the most important newspapers in the country at that time. It really is, where Pulitzer um, pulitzer sort of forms his beliefs about the activism of journalism and that journalism should always be looking out for the little guy and against the moneyed interest uh it is at the st louis post dispatch where he forms those opinions he doesn't doesn't take long before he moves to new york he moves to new york in 1883 so by the time you know he He starts the Post-Dispatch in 1878. He moves in 1883. But he started the paper that is still the city's um, major newspaper. Uh, And it really is where he establishes himself as the type of journalist that he would get get more credit and sometimes criticism for in New York. Um, So, yeah, the Post-Dispatch is... Uh, that sort of continual legacy of Joseph Pulitzer.
1: And I understand that he stayed in St. Louis for about two decades before he took control of the New York world. And so he's connected with lots of places in the city. And You were kind of referencing some of these. He worked for a time at Tony Faust Oyster House and Saloon until he was fired for spilling food on a customer. And we're talking about he spent much of his free time at the Mercantile Library, which has which was a hub of cultural and intellectual interchange in the city. But the library that he frequented at 510 Locust Street was demolished and replaced with a new building in the 1880s. But there are still some reminders of Pulitzer's past in St. Louis today. For example, I know there's one big one at the Missouri History Museum, a marble bust. Can you tell us a little bit about this bust of Pulitzer?
0: You're right. In our museum, the Missouri History Museum in Forest Park in St. Louis, we have um what I think is another great reminder of pulitzer's uh, status in around the world really, so it is a bust created by august Rodin um you know Rodin from the um the thinker or the kiss or the or the gates of hell sculpture um Rodin was. Controversial when he started off. Many people did not like his style, but he became more and more popular. And by 1907, business leaders around the world really wanted a bust created by Rodin. Um, Pulitzer himself, I'm not so sure, was that interested, but his wife certainly was. Uh, and Rodin was, uh, sorry, Pulitzer was vacationing in. France in 1907, and with the help of some editors at the New York World, they connect with Rodin and ask him to go down and meet with um, Pulitzer and create this bust. Um, Pulitzer, by the way, was uh, very prickly, especially at this stage of his career, and said that that was fine, that um, Rodin could come down but that uh Pulitzer said I'm not going to adapt myself to him he's going to have to adapt to me he's going to have to c- come with me whenever I'm out for a ride he's not going to be able to touch me in the afternoon so Pulitzer had all of these rules of how Rodin should behave um Rodin comes down to do the to carve the bust it's a white marble bust um when you see it at the museum you'll see that it is sort of a head and shoulders bust, but Pulitzer is wearing no shirt. Um, This was common practice for Rodin. He asked his models to pose without clothing. Um, When Rodin first told Pulitzer this, uh, Pulitzer wanted no part of it. Pulitzer was a bit uh, prudish, um, did not like the idea of undressing in front of people and having someone sculpt him that way. Uh Rodin put his foot down and said, I can't do this unless I can see the neck and shoulders, and I will just uh leave and never do this bust if you don't agree. So they compromised, everyone else had to leave the room. Pulitzer then took off his shirt. Rodin created the bust that you can now see at the Missouri History Museum. One of the most fascinating parts of that bust is it, it really tells many stories. Um But one is the the health struggles that Joseph Pulitzer had, and I'm sure your historian talked about. Um, Pulitzer was battling blindness for for many decades, um, and certainly at this time. And so Pulitzer actually asked Rodin to carve the bust as if he was sighted and not show that he was blind. And Rodin said simply that I will... I will show what I see in your face, not what you see or what you want shown. And so when you look at the bust, you will see that what Rodin has done is uh, almost completely closed Pulitzer's eyes. So you get that sense that that he is going blind, but it's done in such a dignified way. I think it also shows the the power of Pulitzer and what a proud person he was. and, and that's something that Rodin said. Rodin said, blind though he was, he was a great dominant force. And this characteristic I tried to express in my bust of him. So that bust was created in 1907. Just four years later, Pulitzer uh, passes away. But that is part of our permanent collection and something that visitors can see in our second floor gallery. And I really for me, it's an interesting bookend. Um, Pulitzer both starts his life in St Louis, and when you pick up the morning newspaper, you remember how important Pulitzer was to this community and then that bust by Rodin really shows the final days of Pulitzer and the struggles that he was having, but also the pride that he had and the worldwide importance that he had that he would um that he would be able to call on Rodin to create such a bus.
1: I'm glad you gave us that context there, because it sounds like that bus tells a bit of a story about Pulitzer the man, even though obviously one of the most powerful, influential men in the world at the time, still maybe grappling with his own mortality, his sickness, his failing eyesight, which we've discussed is was a part of his life um, you know, for a very long time. Uh, and yet still he was, you know, he was concerned about how he would appear in this bus. So maybe, uh, some concern there about posterity, how he would be remembered. Do you think?
0: I think so. He specifically wanted these busts to be in, in the newsrooms. Um, and so he knew that these would be on display. He knew that this was one way that he would be remembered, um, uh, you know, of course, his biggest legacies, uh, uh, his biggest legacies are the Pulitzer Prize and communi- and Columbia University. Um, so no matter how he had been portrayed, he was going to be remembered as a great and important and influential individual. But he was absolutely concerned about how he was betrayed, how he was seen, Um and and I don't know if we can even fully grasp how difficult those final years were for him. I mean, the amount of um, care that he took in... In having quiet, the, you know, sounds bothered him so much that he was basically creating soundproof chambers that he could live in. And, and he would go through incredible bouts of depression. So it was an incredibly difficult period, but he was always thinking about what future generations would think of him.
1: A very complex man. And uh, one that is fascinating for us to think about has a lot of uh, maybe some vanity there in the creation of the bus, but also a lot of insecurities coming out um, that we could all relate to. But your museum also has other items that I understand relate to Pulitzer. So what other things could folks see if they go to the Missouri History Museum about Pulitzer?
0: we do many of those are in our collection that is not necessarily on public view but you can come in and do research about pulitzer so we have another bust actually created by one of rodin's students um and this was a common practice because rodin would oftentimes make a cast and then his students would actually produce these busts or these uh statues and monuments um We have an old newspaper desk that Pulitzer used, and we have lots of papers, um, a, a really fascinating collection from the full Pulitzer family, but we also have some Civil War documents from Joseph Pulitzer. So those aren't on display at the museum, but they are part of our library and research center where researchers can come in and do their own research.
1: As you look back, Jody, and consider the entire scope of Pulitzer's time in St. Louis, what do you think living there meant to him? Did it hold a special place in his heart? Obviously, I think a lot of us today associate Pulitzer more with New York for the New York world. And as you said, the Pulitzer Prize is out of Columbia, New York City. But St. Louis seemed to play a pretty prominent role. So how much did that mean?
0: I, th- I think it meant a lot. You know, it was a foundational role. It really was where he got his start. Um, and in 1907, when he when he retires, he's not just retiring from the New York World. He's he's retiring from the St. Louis Post Dispatch as well. Um, and he you know he has this these great parties uh parties in both New York and here in St. Louis to announce his retirement now he had announced his retirement before so people weren't quite sure whether to believe him but um but he he makes this great statement um during his retirement speech in 1907 and you know the post dispatch still has it etched uh in a wall in their offices um and it's become known for them as the post-dispatch platform and i really think it shows it encapsulates all of the beliefs that pulitzer had about the power of journalism Um, and really those beliefs were formed here in St Louis, so the quote is a little bit long but if if you'll forgive me i'll I'll tell you what it says because I think it's a great a great kind of closer about what Pulitzer hoped would be his legacy and and clearly is because the post dispatch still uses this as sort of their foundational statement, their mission statement. So he said that he knew that the newspapers would be fine after he left. Um, He said that the Post-Dispatch, he said, it will always fight for progress and reform, never tolerate injustice or corruption, always fight demagogues of all parties, never belong to any party. Always oppose privileged classes and public plunderers. Never lack sympathy with the poor. Always remain devoted to the public welfare. Never be satisfied with merely printing news. Always be drastically independent. Never be afraid to attack wrong, whether predatory plutocracy or by predatory Poverty. I think that is uh, both an amazing statement for its time, but it's also inspiring that that has also remained, along with the Post Dispatch itself, along with this Rodin bust. Is that that sort of mission statement, that sort of challenge for journalism, and? I've talked to journalists often. We did a Pulitzer Prize photographs exhibit just a couple of years ago. And I tell audiences that those are the ideals that most journalists are trying to live up to. They don't always succeed. And we oftentimes talk about those journalists who don't succeed in those efforts. But I believe that that's what most journalists are trying to do is expose those issues, expose those problems, and are really inspired by the life and legacy of Joseph
2: Pulitzer.
1: Well, I think inspired is the right word there, as you say, because uh, for someone who was going through so much in life, certainly did not start out rich, uh, and then also had all of these health problems, for him to still be so bold and so independent and fierce in the competition with William Randolph Hearst, as we're getting into in this podcast series on Pulitzer and Hearst. Uh, you know, it's a, it's interesting that, to see this other dimension of him uh, beyond the sort of one dimensional, he was involved in this newspaper war and he was a yellow journalist and uh, he did some sensational things and that was about all he's known for. And you've given us a, a good scope of that and we appreciate it. And I'd encourage... Our listeners to plan a trip to the Missouri History Museum. General admission there is free, of course, as we weather the COVID-19 pandemic. Tours of many museums have been temporarily suspended or the museum hours have changed. And so you should always check websites, check the Missouri History website in advance to make sure it's open whenever you are planning to go. The URL of the website is a little bit long, but if you just Google Missouri History Museum, it'll pop up. And before we wrap up here, Jody, I'd just like to pose to you a question that we always ask guests to end the Journalism History podcast. Why does journalism history matter?
0: Journalism history matters because truth matters and because knowing more about the world around you is one of the things that we should think of as a responsibility. and. It's easy to get lost in today's back and forth about uh, fake news or uh, who is biased and forget that uh, journalism really has this proud history. Um, and to know American history, you really need to know journalism history. And that's certainly the case with someone like Joseph Pulitzer, uh, Here is this great inspirational figure for people who are journalists or not, a real rags-to-riches story, a real uh, immigrant success story. It's something we can all learn from, and it's a way of better understanding American history as a whole.
1: Thank you, Jody, for coming on today to talk to us on the Journalism History Podcast, for showing us the side of Pulitzer from his St. Louis years. We really appreciate all of your time.
0: Thank you very much. It was great fun talking to you.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, and additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis. As we wrap up today, I'd like to recommend some other ways you can learn about Pulitzer. Of course, Chris Daly's fantastic book, Covering America, and the PBS documentary that he helped conceive, Joseph Pulitzer, Voice of the People, as well as two books on Pulitzer. The first is Pulitzer, A Life in Politics, Print and Power, by James McGrath Morris, which is considered the definitive biography of Joseph Pulitzer. And the other is The World on Sunday, graphic art in Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, 1898 to 1911, written by Nicholas and Baker and Margaret Brentano. And don't forget to listen to our next episode to be released tomorrow on Pulitzer's rival, William Randolph Hearst. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night. And good luck!